If you haven't talked to someone that went to Bolivia this past summer, uh, personally, uh, I invite you to ask them a question, a couple of questions uh, about some of the trips. Um, the probably the most adventurous story you'll hear is the trip home. And, um, you know, it, it, the reason I share that, if, if um, when we started in Cochabamba, for example, to go to Misque, where the Chagas project was, <clears throat> if we just had to tell the team, we're going to get there, we're going to get to, to Misque. And uh, we, we also told them that the road wasn't the greatest and there might be some things along the way, but we're going to get there. Um, similarly, I, I you know, wished I had the presence of mind when we left Cochabamba to come to Canada. I would have said, we're going to get there. <laughs> it took a couple days longer than we thought it would, but we got here. <clears throat> I, I say that because I think in similar ways... When you joined with Jesus walking the road of life, and if he were to say to you, well, he, you're going to get there. The Bible says that he is able one day to, pre to present us, each one, sinners as we are, before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Can you imagine? That's his commitment. He's going to say, he's going to get you there. But he... He, he, he couldn't possibly tell you the route. He couldn't possibly prepare you for the whole journey. Not only the things that providentially are going to come upon you and you have nothing to do with them, nor the things that are detours that you have everything to do with, that you make wrong decisions in and so on. But the point is that his commitment is so great to his children, he's saying, I'm going to get you there. But the road is not always going to be easy. I, I also want to say to you that at the beginning of this sermon, bear with me in this message because I wanted to read where we're going to end, okay? Where we're going to end this message is this prayer. I'm going to pray in a few minutes after the sermon, come Holy Spirit and help people kill the sin that kills their joy. That's what I'm going to pray. So I want you to know where, where our destination is, because between here and there, it's not always very pretty. And you may not like some of the things you hear, but that's where we're going, okay? A couple of weeks ago, we studied the life of King David in chapters 9 and 10 when when we saw that David, in his, in his wisdom actually, was taking all the favor, the blessing from God, and he was turning it back up to God in worship and out to others in kindness, undeserved kindness, to even family members of his enemies. Today, as we open up our Bibles, we see that this same David was taking all that authority and blessing and favor of God, and he was abusing it for his own ends, even to the point of murdering someone for his, own, for his own pleasures, his own desires. What happened that made David so very vulnerable to the deception of sin in his life? 
He was at the top of his game. He was in his early 50s, likely. He was king of all of Israel. He was uh, at a time in his life when all, all close enemies had been subdued. What is it that made him so vulnerable to sin's deception? And what can we learn about our own vulnerability to the snares of sin so that we might pursue a God-pleasing life? I read an article a few weeks back about a study that had been done, done with mountain lions showing that they can actually detect vulnerabilities in their prey before they attack. And so they know which ones to hone in on that are the weakest, the youngest, the sickest, the most injured. That's how the mountain lion lives in the wild. The mountain lion follows the scent of vulnerability and feasts on whatever he finds. And that is how the enemy of our souls, Satan, also hunts. He has the same instinct of smelling out the vulnerabilities and weaknesses of our lives. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, for Satan, the devil, is like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's got the scent of vulnerability, and he knows each one of you. He knows each one of you and where you are vulnerable. Before we begin to look at our Bibles this morning and study the story of David and Bathsheba, let me make a few comments to a few select groups of people who are present this morning. The first group I'd like to address is the children among us. Now, children, you might be hearing some strange words this morning in the sermon, words like sexual immorality or adultery. These are words that the Bible uses to describe two people acting as if they are married when they're not married. In simple terms, God does not want uh, a, a woman and a man touching each other or sleeping with each other as if they were married when they're not married. That's what these words mean. God has reserved that special kind of relationship for marriage, for moms and dads. Parents, I'd like to talk to you for a moment. Parents, you you would receive this message today as an invitation to a dialogue. To a dialogue with, yes, of course, your children, but also other parents of similar age children about the kinds of boundaries that need to be set up in your home and with all devices and media that are going on. And even then, you can be sure that you cannot fully protect your children from things that they will see, such as pornography, but it's important that you talk about it and that you talk about it in age-sensitive ways. Perhaps it is also important that mothers with daughters and fathers with sons, if it's possible. A third group I'd like to mention is those who have fallen into sexual sin. I want to talk to you this morning. If you've fallen prey to sexual sin, whether it is premarital sin, extramarital sin, or private sexual sin, if you have fallen prey to any of those, I want you to hear two messages this morning, not one. The first message that I want you to hear is, is about the gravity of sin and its consequences, that there are consequences to not 
not functioning in the boundaries of this gift of sex that God given humanity. And secondly, I want you to hear the message of God's incredible restoring grace and forgiveness for anyone that has fallen, however far you've fallen, in whatever direction you've fallen. In the words of Corey Ten Boom, there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. You need to know that. I hope you hear that second message this morning. The third group I want to address is women among us. The danger that you women might have in, in this message is thinking that the story of David with Bathsheba has nothing to teach you because it is about a man who lusts after a woman. Of course, women can lust as well. Internet use recently shows us that that's on the rise. But I would rather that you women hear the principles of this message and plug in the snares or the sins that are your go-to temptations, your places of refuge aside from the refuge you're meant to find in God, your places of trust where God is decided, you decide not to trust in God. That's the level that you need to take the message to. And then finally, men, I want to address you briefly to say that the issue this morning is not simply the behavior that's going on, but I really believe the issue is, is very much about your heart. The appetites and the desires of your heart, the things that dominate your life, the cravings of your heart can become sexualized, though they might have nothing to do with sex. They can lead you into habitual use of pornography, fantasies, masturbation, to mask the deeper need that is down at the root of it all. Just as there were triggers in David's life that we're going to look at, there are triggers in our lives as well, and the devil has a scent for those things. Someone has said that sexual addiction is a disorder of intimacy. Sexual sins are a disorder of intimacy. It takes work, friends. Men, it takes work to get to the heart of the things that are really driving the cravings that come out in sexualized behavior. So with that long introduction, if you would take your Bibles to, to first or 2 Samuel and chapter 11, I'm going to ask you to remain seated for a moment, and then I'll ask you to stand in a moment as well. But we'll begin in chapter 11, and we'll start reading in verse 1, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? And then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. The story goes on from verse 6 and following to say that David has a decision to make. 
In fact, there's a pivotal time in the story between verses 5 and 6 when David has an opportunity to do the fight or flight syndrome. And David chooses to run, to try and run from the consequences of his sin with Bathsheba. And so he devises a scheme and he, he asks Uriah, the, the husband of Bathsheba, who incidentally is one of the 30 faithful men of David. He asks him to come home thinking that he will come home, sleep with his wife, and that no one will notice that the little boy born sort of resembles the king. But Uriah is a faithful and loyal soldier, and he cannot bear to go home and enjoy privileges when all of his colleagues and fellow soldiers are out in the camp in the valley just outside of the city they're attacking. And so he goes home, and instead of sleeping with his wife, he goes to the tabernacle and sleeps on a mat at the door. When David finds out the next day, he says, what's wrong with you? Why didn't you, you know, and so he says, has him stay one more day. This day, he has him to a party in the palace, and he gets Uriah drunk. He thinks now for sure he will go home and sleep with his wife, and my sin will be covered. But again, instead of going home, he goes to the tabernacle, sleeps on the mat outside the door. And now David is up against the wall. What will he do? He writes a letter to the commander of the army, Joab, and he says, have Uriah the Hittite be put in the fiercest place of the battle and then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down. Joab receives the message right from the hand of Uriah and carries out the orders of King David so that as the, 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 they come up against the wall and they, they get so close and, and then all of a sudden, all the army of Israel, except this small group around Uriah, fall back. And the archers from the, from the walls kill those men. And note, notice in the scriptures in verse 25, what the messengers says. David sends a message back to Joab. And he says, say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. And when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had, had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. <clears throat> Would you stand with me now and hear the next portion of this scripture? Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said, Nathan, sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said... There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and grew it up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, You are the man. May God bless his word. You may be seated. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 27 says, Can a man scoop fire into his lap 
without his clothes being burned. The sin of David with Bathsheba in chapter 11 has its roots many years earlier prior to this incident in chapter 11. In fact, if we get a glimpse of it in chapter 5, verse 13 of 2 Samuel, we read here, after he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. Here is David at an incredible point in his life, making a conscious decision, contrary to the law of God, to take more women into his household, concubines and wives. Now, this is at the same time as he has just been made king over all of Israel, not just Judah, and he has made some good decisions as well. He's made the decision to make Jerusalem the capital. He's made the decision to how to conquer imminent enemies around Israel. He's made the decision to bring the ark of God up from where it's sitting to Jerusalem and begin worshiping there. He's made some good decisions, but in the middle of even these decisions, he's making some very bad decisions. You see, in ancient times, for the kings of the day to be able to sustain loyalty in their household, the way that they did it was to have many wives and concubines, and so their offspring was going to be loyal to their, their house. And it was also a way of succession planning. We also see that, this, that women became a snare to David in the list of wives that that uh, he had not just Israelite women, but foreign women. Politically correct marriages that would garnish future alliances. You see, everything that David was making decisions about in this area of his life was absolutely not trusting God. In Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 17, the law of Moses said that when a king is placed over Israel, he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. And so David's life is a lesson to men that other women or more women are not the solution of an unhappy marriage. They're not the solution of a problem with lust. David had several women in his life he could choose from, and even then he was not content or satisfied, but instead chose to take another man's wife, and not just another man, but one of his most loyal subjects, a friend. And with that woman, he committed adultery. The snare in David's life had started years earlier. And it should serve as a warning to us that if we allow snares to exist unattended in our lives, they will lead us to fall one day. The second thing I want to draw your attention to is the downhill slide that sin often follows as a pattern. It doesn't matter if it's going to be the sin of self-pity or stealing, lying or cheating, or, or whether it's lust, whatever it might be. Sin often follows the pattern of a slow descent, a downhill slide. You can see it in chapters 11, 1 to 5. You'll notice first verse, David remains in Jerusalem. He did not go out to war. He sent all of his men out to war. And there he is left alone in the palace, no close associates with idle time on his hands. Second verse, one evening. I want to underline that. One evening, a vulnerable time. One evening. David, a vulnerable man. It says, one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof 
of his palace, a vulnerable place. You see, if he was going to be given to lust, this was a bad place and a bad time for David. For you see, the palace was the building at the center that was the highest of all, and from his rooftop he could look around upon the patios of all the other subjects that that were around him. And so there he is, and he saw a woman bathing naked, and she was beautiful. Verse 3, David sends someone to find out about her. Verse 4, he sent messengers to get her. He had found out that this was his friend's wife. He still sent messengers to get her. It didn't matter that it was another man's wife. Gordon MacDonald writes this, Like many who ascend to leadership positions, David as king might have gradually begun to live above the rules that others were expected to follow. The responsibilities and pressures of leadership often do a number on the mind of the leader, One can slowly convince him or herself that there are privileges and freedoms that should be given to you that are not given to others. Strange things happen in the minds of leaders. Verse 4, David slept with Bathsheba. The text is not clear whether this was a one-night stand or whether it was a several series of encounters while the army of Israel is away. But in the end, Bathsheba conceives, and it says in verse 5, she sends word to David, I'm pregnant with your child. Now, what was happening to David during this time? What was going on in his mind? There was a weakening of resistance to live within the boundaries that he had decided to live within. There was an eroding of the vigilance normally used. There was a a rationalizing, a justifying of things. All part of the downhill slide of the deception of sin that worked in him to be unprepared and not careful. He was not careful you see, to practice good vulnerability. And because he wasn't practicing good vulnerability, he was a victim of bad vulnerability. And so he fell. He fell prey. He was alone. He was weak. There was no one to call. All of his friends were out fighting the battles. There was no fallback plan. There was no escape route that he'd arranged. Jane Hamilton, in a book, that she writes, says, I used to think that you fell from grace. It was likely the result of one stupendous error. I hadn't learned that it can happen so gradually that you don't necessarily sense the motion. I've found that it takes two or possibly three things to alter the course of a life. You slip around the truth once, then again, then another time, and there you are, feeling that it was all of a sudden your arrival at the bottom of the heap. But it was very gradual. Do you understand the difference when I say good vulnerability and bad vulnerability? Does that language make sense to you? You see, if you practice good vulnerability, then you understand yourself, you you commend yourself to another person, you open up your heart to the weaknesses that you face, the vulnerabilities, the temptations. You take a trusted person as a confidant. You bring them into your inner world. You confess. You say, I need prayer. I need to be able to call you. They might even reciprocate. I remember one time in my life, I've always sought men that will be my, my people that I can turn to. I remember one time, 
I, I opened up and I shared a vulnerability with a man. And you know what his response was? He went like this. Really? Do you think you want to open up to someone like that? Really? You see, you see we're, good vulnerability requires that you just you humble yourself. You bear your soul. You, you, you try, because why? Because the end goal is far more important than the temporal pride. Bad vulnerability is what happens when you don't practice good vulnerability. You, you leave yourself open to, the, to being a target of the enemy and you are alone and Satan's devising is to divide and conquer. That's how he wins battles. Thirdly, we look at the deceitful scheme. As I said to you earlier, there's something important that happens between verses 5 and 6 when David finds out that Bathsheba is pregnant. What is he going to do? He has been responsible for creating a life conceived in a woman, not his wife. What will he do to respond? If David had been living today, perhaps he would have had some servants discreetly visit Bathsheba one night and take her to an abortion clinic, and the whole matter would have been swept aside. He could have maybe lived the lie a little longer. In between verses 5 and 6, David makes a fight or flight decision. He chooses flight. He decides he can try to run from the consequences of his sin, cover his wrongdoing, hide his guilt. He devises a scheme that will hopefully cover it over. He brings Uriah from the front lines to sleep with his wife. But this man does not fall into the trap. By God's providence, this man does not fall into the scheme. And so the plan doesn't work. I imagine that the loyalty of Uriah was like salt in David's wounded conscience already. David does all he can to cover his tracks. Finally, he devises a scheme that will end in Uriah's death. And look at the words again, verse 25, when he says to Joab, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Do you hear this out-of-touch-with-reality voice? that what he knew would be decent and right on a normal day, he has given himself over to insanity. I feel I need to say straight up that we are all capable of living the lie. We're all capable of living the lie, devising plans to cover our sin so that others would not find out about our shame. We're all capable of addictive behavior that lies and deceives in order to pursue or hide something. The use of pornography is a sexually addictive behavior that brings shame to many men and women. There are some very vulnerable men at very vulnerable places at very vulnerable times that need to be coming out into the light. It hinders husbands and wives in their intimacy. It cripples many Christians to make them helpless in their witness because they live with the shame of a double life. It has been said that pornography is either the root of or it feeds all forms of sexual exploitation on earth today. In almost every sex crime, research shows that the use of porn has been present as a primary influence. The need to be vigilant in this area and practice good vulnerability can save you from such misery and shame. 
Unfortunately, sin's deceit can be so strong that many people cannot get there, cannot get out of its grip unless they are caught in the sin or confronted in the sin. This morning in the first service, John Sedarius, I, I, I didn't have it in my notes, but I was looking right at him, and I remember what he shared to me a couple years ago when he was in the child pornography unit of the Winnipeg City Police, and he had to, had to go and, and confront people in their homes. He remembers one man, he was so relieved that they finally caught up to him. He was so relieved that the lie could stop being lived, the double life. I wonder if David wasn't relieved somehow when finally Nathan's finger was pointed at his chest and he said, you are the man. I wonder if it wasn't that at that point that David finally felt some relief. I can stop living the lie. Friends, if you are caught in any kind of duplicity, of, of hidden secrecy, come out of the shadows, come out of the darkness, come into the light. Start practicing good vulnerability with one other trusted Christian. God can give you that person that might just save some very important years of your life. David has sent the prophet Nathan. Charles Spurgeon said this, that God does not allow his children to sin successfully. Once Uriah was out of the way, David took Bathsheba to be his wife. He thought that he could carry on the road without anybody knowing. You know, we don't even know how long this happened. We're, we know that there's a child that David prays for not to die. It, it was probably at least a year that David lived the lie, thinking that he had covered his tracks and could live on. We don't know exactly how long it is, but... God, in his time, sent Nathan the prophet. And Nathan arrives and tells him a very innocent little story. And David was so un, unprepared for this, caught, that he even passed judgment on himself. He called for the death penalty in verse 5. In actual fact, what David had done was deserving of death, according to the Old Testament law. He had broken three of the Ten Commandments. He had co coveted another man's wife. He had committed adultery with her, and he had killed her husband. And yet he had ex exonerated himself for these crimes while a rich man who stole one sheep from a poor man, he deserved to die. <laughs> Do you see how blinded we can be from the sin and the deceitfulness of sin? It was not until the story had been told and David was interrupted in his response with Nathan saying, you are the man, that finally deep conviction came upon David like like an arrow from the Holy Spirit to his heart. What he was unable to see, unable to, con to conceive of, in that one moment, the Holy Spirit came in and convicted him, and he was brought to repentance. And in the rest of chapter 12, we see genuine repentance. Read chapter 51 of Psalms. It was written, probably there was a dry spell of psalm writing in David's life, but Psalm 51 was the one that broke the writer's block. And he opened up and he said, a broken spirit and a, a contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. John White wrote this, We quickly lose our sense of smell 
when we breathe an atmosphere polluted by sin. It is only after breathing heaven's air for a while that we even discover the difference. Sin is so, so scary, so deceitful. I think David was relieved when he was caught. He was tired of the whispers around the palace, tired of living the lie, tired of being distant from God. He needed so desperately to confess his sin and be forgiven. God sent him a flesh and blood prophet. I want to encourage you to come out of the darkness into the light. Go to a brother. Start down the road of good vulnerability. Go to a sister. Start down the road of good vulnerability. Do the James 5.16 thing. Confess your sins one to another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. The book that is being studied downstairs by Bonhoeffer, Life Together, he talks about it in chapter 5 when he mentions this very thing of confessing one to another. Have you ever wondered why it is that it's easier for you to confess your sin to God than it is to confess your sin to another sister or brother? Bonhoeffer says this, Why should we not find it easier to go to a brother than to go to the holy God? But if we do, we must ask ourselves whether we have not been deceiving ourselves with our confession of sin to God, whether we have not rather been confessing our sins to ourselves and also granting ourselves absolution. And it is not the reason perhaps for our countless relapses and the feebleness of our Christian obedience to be found precisely in the fact that we are living on self-forgiveness and not real forgiveness. You see, God gave us the body of Christ. God gave us brothers and sisters to walk with to help protect us from the things that could easily cause us to stumble. David's confession brings about the Lord's forgiveness, chapter 12, verse 13, but it didn't stop there from being immediate and long-term consequences to his sin. We're going to look at that in the weeks to come. And I want you to know, this was not judgment from an angry God that was going to get his pound of flesh from this foolish man, David. No, this was a loving Heavenly Father that understood how much sin can get a grip on us and how quickly we can forget the last lesson of shame and go back to the cesspool again. And his discipline upon us serves only holy purposes. So I ask you the question this morning, somewhere along life's journey, somewhere in the path that you've traveled for the last several years, have you been honest enough to ask yourself, why am I the way I am? Ask yourself the question. The Bible has the answer. The Bible says that you are the way you are because you were sold as a slave to sin. You were sold as a slave to sin. It came about in the first Adam where you were symbolically hidden in him and infected with the entire human race of this sin gene. It is healed through the second Adam, Jesus Christ. We all need rescuing. We all need to come to him in confession. We all need to live the broken life. Do not wait. God wants each one of us to be in close communion with Him. And the only thing that could ever separate you from the love of God our Father is unconfessed sin. You see, the word unconfessed means to disagree with God. 
because the word confess means to say the same thing as God. That's all you're doing. When you confess your sin, you're just saying, I agree with you, God. I'm guilty. But when you have unconfessed sin, you, you're saying, I don't agree with you, God. That's the only thing that can separate you from God. God wants us involved in killing what Jesus died to kill. Jesus died to kill sin in your life, in my life. Romans 8.13, put to death the misdeeds of the body. Do violence against them. Take no prisoners. Sin is after you. In the words of God to Cain in Genesis 4-7, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Kill or be killed. Sin has consequences for the believer. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man will reap, a woman will reap what he or she sows. We are deceived if we think that we can be eternally secure and not fight sin. John Piper says it this way, eternal life is found only on one path, and it is a sin-killing path. And if you are not on that path, then you do not have assurance of eternal life. Do not make peace with lust. That's a strong word. I want you to know that does not mean that you get off that sin-killing path every so often because you have been lured and tempted and you fall. But you know what? As soon as that happens, there's this incredible zoning in on you with angelic beings and Holy Spirit presence and a disciplining Heavenly Father, and He comes down on you like an anvil, and He says, get back on the sin-killing path because that's where my children walk. You will be miserable if you try walking on any other path, if you're a child of God. How do you kill the sin of lust? I want you to know you kill the sin of lust like you kill any sin. You do not kill the sin of lust by picking its fruit and just trying to get rid of it, hide it. You kill the sin of lust by burying its root and chopping the, the roots out just like any sin. You get to the root of it. You get deeper than the sexualized issues of your life and you go to the heart and you say, what is it that I'm seeking for that is not being satisfied in God? And you go to your heart and you say, oh heart of mine, go to the source of all blessing, of all beauty, of all sweetness. Go to God. Go to the Savior of your soul. The one whose love is stronger than iron, go to God and let your fight be fighting to find joy in Him where all that other misplaced joy has taken you in other places. I told you that I would end here by saying, come Holy Spirit, help people kill the sin that kills their joy in you. David says this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, 
you will not despise. Let us pray. Oh God, this is a sacred moment, I believe, because we bring our prayer to you. We bring our hearts to you, our duplicit hearts, our hearts that are crowded with things, that the, the pure holy flame of devotion to you has been snuffed out or it's been, it's been messed with. And God, we bring our hearts to you. We know that the only solution to the cravings of our hearts that go in wrong directions is a craving that is all-consuming going in the right direction right after you. All of our fountains are in you, oh God. And so, Lord, we pray that, that you would just receive us broken, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. So receive the prayers of your people today. And God, help us, oh God, help us to practice the good vulnerability that we might not be victims of the bad. In Jesus' name, amen.